Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. It'd be a great day. I'm excited about it. I love Mondays. You know that. And I'm going to start with the verse from Isaiah, chapter 26, verse 3. You should know this for memory. You will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. It'd be a great show. Patrick Albany is going to come on in just a minute or two. And then Vanitha Reisner is going to be joining me. And she is one of the most inspirational people you will hear all week. And then in the second hour, Dr. Everett Piper, you may remember him from the being the president of Oklahoma Wesleyan University. He'll be joining me. And then John Geiger, who wrote a book say that's it, that says, kids say the wisest things. That's all today. We'll take 60 seconds and bring on Patrick. Hi, I'm Susie Larson, and I just want to say a special thank you for the way that you showed up at our recent SHARE campaign. We are so excited about what God is doing at Faith Radio, and we're excited about you, our dear listeners. The way that you said, count me in, I want to be part of a story that's bigger than I am. Because of your incredible gifts, the gospel will go forth boldly and clearly every single day. Because of the seeds you sown, lives are going to be forever changed. People who are hanging on by a thread are going to find hope once more. People who are on the verge of making life-altering decisions will take a U-turn and come back to Jesus because of your great gifts. So we say thank you with all of our heart, and I do pray God's richest blessings on you and yours in the coming days. I pray he blesses the work of your hands. I pray that he keeps you strong and healthy, and I pray that he tends to some of those deep, deep desires of your heart. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. I pray that verse for you. Thank you. Thank you with all of our hearts. We say thank you. What would you do with a brain if you had one? Do? Why, if I had a brain, I could... I could while away the hours, conferring with the flowers, consulting with the rain. And my head, I'd be scratching while my thoughts were busy hatching if I only had a brain. Welcome to the show. It's Monday, and I love Mondays. I love Tuesdays, but you know I love Mondays. And Mondays, I always get to start my week with a discussion with my friend and colleague from... The Panhandle of Iowa, Patrick Albanese. Patrick, welcome. And when you say panhandle. <laughs> <laughs> what is a panhandle? And do panhandlers ever go into panhandle areas to panhandle? No, they don't. I don't. I bet there's a law against that. I would imagine which there, I'm actually, there was. I mean, we pass all kinds of laws on everything else. I would like Congress to pass a law that says that Congress is limited to the number of laws they can pass. <laughs> I think that would be, be wise. We don't we don't have a panhandle in Iowa, but you could say that where I live, if this were if the United States were an LP, mm-hmm. I'd be that little hole right in the center. <laughs> <laughs> How many states have panhandles? Do you know? Uh, let's see. Oklahoma has one. Uh, of course, Florida has a panhandle. Texas. Yeah, Texas. You know, and I've always looked at that. I said, that's not. Is that really a panhandle? Oh, it's a pan- uh, oh, it's a panhandle. It's a panhandle. Yeah, it's I a drove panhandle. across. These- the state of Texas in 1984 and finished in 1985. <laughs> it was, I had no idea how big that state was. Uh-huh. No, 
And I was driving from uh, California. I'd stopped in Phoenix to see family. And then I said, you know, I'm just going to, I'm going to go see my friend in Dallas. And uh, so I get into, I think uh, the, where I entered Texas, it, it was still New Mexico. I'm not sure. <laughs> and I go, this state goes on, it's 24 hours from one side to the next. Uh-huh. 24 hours oh, of, driving. of driving. You know, it's got to be so much more fun to be on the East Coast where you're like, look at that, three hours, I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> West Virginia. See you, two and a half. Well, I'm I got to tell you, West Virginia has uh, two panhandles. It's got an eastern and a northern. Really? Yeah, that's got two. So that's kind of cool. And Alaska's got one as well. Twice, I mean, if you're living in the, in, in the panhandle of Alaska, life has got to be a little grim, don't you think? I, I would imagine. I would also fear, you know, living in a panhandle where you say, is there anything really solid underneath me? Or is this just a big block of ice? <laughs> but should this melt, Alaska is actually not the biggest state. It's smaller than Rhode Island. Yeah. You know, so it's probably good that it stays nice and cold there. All they right. got a panhandle. Yeah, yeah. they have now, a panhandle. We're in the, uh, it's a wonderful life season. I, I mean, it's on six times a day uh, between now and New Year's. So uh, I was interested to find out that the way they made that movie, and of course, Jimmy Stewart was not the first person they had in mind for the lead role. Do you know who was? I do not know who was. Was it Buddy Epson? Because he was going to be—he was going to be the Tin Man too. Did he get? Did he get uh, uh, st- another role stolen? No, no, he didn't. It was Cary Grant. Cary Grant was the one they had in mind. Oh, that wouldn't work. Oh, it would not work. Tom Selleck was supposed to be Indiana Jones. Yep. Uh, Buddy Epson was supposed to be the Tin Man. That could have worked. That could have worked. I saw him, by the way. Uh, I think he was ninety-ish. And uh, I, he, I saw, he came to the Magic Castle, and he got up on stage, and, you know, the crowd just loved him there. And then he did a little a little, a little soft shoe. Oh, you're kidding. Uh, yeah. No, would... I think they called it hips a pop <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> it was, it was, you're going, that's, that's Buddy Epson. I mean, it's Barnaby Jones. Yeah. It's Jack Slam. He's all legend. these things. He's a legend. He's a legend, you're going, and he's still trying to entertain me. Oh, that's fantastic. That's Jed Clampett coming out. Jed, That was the Jed Clampett coming out. Yeah. Always hospitality. Okay, now, did you know that they filmed It's a Wonderful Life in July in California? That's, uh, and of course, let's see, this would have been, what, the 30s? I think they made this. So air conditioning was probably at a premium. Mm-hmm. It was one of the worst heat waves on record when they shot it. Well, plus back then, you know, as you know, I know you take some uh, photographs and now we have LED lights, which don't generate heat. But back then they'd have these 50 arc, well, I forget right. what they call them, but they, they were heat monsters. Uh, so you're you're taking probably 100 degree weather and then you're saying to the actors, okay, get into these very warm lights. Oh, and they're in heavy coats because it's winter. Because it's winter. Yes. Well, the snow couldn't have held up very long. Well, they used uh, cornflakes too. That scene on the bridge, that's cornflakes. Cornflakes, what's the difference? (laughs) Exactly. And Frank Capra, the director, had to give everyone a day off to recuperate after one incredibly hot day where everyone was just at wit's end. That's interesting because you see that movie and you go, come on, that was filmed in in the winter. But Bedford Falls was one entire set on four acres, 70 buildings. It was all manufactured for the movie. Well, I love that, though. That's the magic of Hollywood. And, of course, I love that movie, and I'm so glad that they now show the black and white version instead of that. Remember, for years, the colorized version was the only one you could see because they said, people won't watch this. It's black and white. It's got to be in color. And it was just not the same movie because it didn't look right. 
But uh, I, I have a, a mutual friend of ours, actually. And uh, whenever we see each other, uh, we we go right into Mr. Potter. <laughs> you, you once called me a warped, frustrated old man. And we started this uh, process 20 years ago, and now I realize we're getting kind of old. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know, it's interesting. You brought this up uh, over the weekend, and I thought it'd be kind of interesting to talk about today is how um, legal age for things is moving, that, that bar is moving all over the place. All over the place. It depends on the, the thing we're talking about. Of course, you know, you, you can um, enlist at 18. Drinking age, they raised to 21. Uh, now they're looking to, I think they're signing it and it's going to happen, uh, tobacco products 21 and vaping products 21. But at the same time, they're talking about, it's like they say, well, you're just not mature enough to handle alcohol and tobacco and vaping. And then they say, but you are mature enough to vote. Well, why don't we just lower that baby down to 16? And then when you think about things like, uh, you know, in schools, they there are places where they'd like to be able to, if a 13-year-old girl is pregnant and wants to get an abortion, they would like to be able to assist her without having to alert the parents. Uh, you know, a kid can't bring, I mean, if, if I gave my kids uh, sucrets, I have to log them into the office hmm. at the school. They have to sucret. be registered that your child has sucrets. Yeah, and okay. then the nurse has to distribute them. Okay. Should there be some sort of illegal sucret trading going on? Oh, the and you can bet there is. Oh, sure. Well, yeah. you got the wild cherry. It doesn't really taste all that wild or very black cherry, licorice. but the grape. Those are in high demand. Oh, yes. That's the thing. And my kids, that's what they ask for. And so now I know what's going on. Okay. But they want to allow a 13-year-old to proceed with an abortion without parental consent. So when yes. are you really an adult? I haven't got a, you know, it's, 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 it's always a moving thing because when they passed Obamacare, they said, well, kids need to be able to stay on their uh, parents' insurance policy to the age of 26. It's like, so 26 is still a kid? Apparently. I, is it still a kid? Apparently that's still a kid. And I remember and that particular thing when people were saying, well, I think this is a really great thing for these kids. I go, it's not such a great thing for their parents. <laughs> it's expensive. They have to pay for it. Right. It's not free. I know. You know, what things? Hey, we passed this law that says somebody else is buying you something. But so, yeah, you're 26, you're an adult, but um, and, you know, you can't have an aspirin at school uh, because you're just not mature enough to handle it. But, you know, something like voting or uh, let's just, you know, they, they have these story times, the drag queen story times. And they say, well, these kids are young enough to understand what's going on. You go, he's six. Mm. I'm not certain why you have a guy dressed up as Princess Fiona, but okay, that's, why is that necessary? Well, kids need to be introduced to that stuff. Ah, but the secrets. So I think it does seem to, for some reason, go right down that divide, doesn't it? The sort of uh, people who are a little bit more liberal in their views think that there's no big thing. Mm -hmm. It's not deal. Like here, I'll give you movies, for example, you know, you would have violence in movies and you would have uh, very gratuitous uh, nudity and uh, let's just say scenes of people interacting with very little clothing on. Mm -hmm. And the response from Hollywood was always, well, you know, uh, the kids can handle it. They're mature enough. And if you don't like it, just don't watch it. But then 
they remove anybody with a cigarette in movies because they said, ooh, if the kids see their their favorite actor smoking, they might take up smoking. That could be an influence. You say, what about the the sex and the violence? Nah, no, no, that doesn't that doesn't affect the kids at all. But it, the smoking does. Oh, it's so intellectually dishonest, Patrick. Yeah. It it just uh yeah, makes me mad. All right, let me take a little break. Patrick Alban is, is my guest, and you know he is from the great state of Iowa, which is getting uh, five political ads every 30 seconds. That's unbelievable. <laughs> we'll take a short break, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. I'm talking to Patrick Albanese, of course, from the panhandle of Iowa, for yeah. the great state of Iowa, which is getting bombarded with political messages. I know. You know, it's so funny. I, I took out the instruction manual to my smart TV and said, OK, you should, you're so smart. You should be able to automatically mute political ads when they're coming on, right? No. <laughs> and not, it's not that smart. My TV is just medium smart. It's, it's, above, it's average, you know, when you have the smarter TVs. Yeah, and, and here's the thing. I I don't know if I've talked about this, so uh, here goes again anyway. Yeah. Uh, in the radio and television industry here, they know that these campaigns are not very bright. They'll spend anything to get their message out. So the rates go way up to place an ad on radio and TV. Double, triple, they go way up. One of the things that does is for like Joe's break shop down the street, mm-hmm. he can no longer afford to run his ads because the rates have gotten too high. Way too high. So Joe doesn't run ads. Now the space that's created, guess what? They get another Pete ad, another uh, Bernie ad, mm-hmm. Joe Biden ad. And so the only ones that can really afford the current going rate, not the only ones, but the primary ones are the political campaigns because money is no object because it's not their money. <laughs> they got mm-hmm. that. So it, it makes it worse as we, it's, it's kind of like, uh, you know, I have my tetherball theory of life that every year of your life is a spin around the pole and the rope gets just a little bit shorter. Well, as we, and then, well, when you hit your, when the ball hits the pole, that's the end. Right. As we approach the, I've told you my tetherball theory. Oh, yeah, I love the tetherball theory. Love it. Yeah, and it goes faster each time. You're like, that rope's getting shorter, and it's going around faster. That's life. Well, as we approach the caucuses, and I think we're five or six weeks away now, uh, the ads are going to increase, and there's the frequency, and the it just you won't be able to get away from it. They're going to be knocking on your doors because people start canvassing, and it's that tetherball, and it's spinning and spinning, and by the time the caucus has happened, you will find a big metal pole and you will hit your own head against it. And say, Please go. Just go away. We're done. Well, it's interesting. I, I saw uh, Alistair Begg's uh, website. I was on it and, he, and there was a statistic he put on, which I found interesting and I shared it with you. 51% of Americans say the Bible was written for each person to interpret as he or she chooses. That's I think half. I responded to you. Yeah, I said they're only half right, which right. means they're half wrong, <laughs> which means half of all people are wrong. Well, wouldn't it be neat if that was the case? Because I, I don't know about you, but you're going to find, and you might find this very hard to believe, but when I basically interpret the Bible as to what works for me, mm-hmm. I'm batting a thousand. Right. <laughs> all of my sins, not so big. <laughs> not that bad. Yeah. 
Turns out they're pretty good ones. Turns out in the hierarchy of sinning, my stuff, the I, as I understand it through my interpretation, they're probably not even considered sins. So it would be nice if we could look at it that way. But uh, then it lets us off the hook for being flawed human beings, doesn't it? Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. somebody's going to say, I'm looking really good here. You don't say, well, you know, gravity's out there and it's your job to interpret what you think of gravity. Yeah. Laws are laws, aren't they? Yeah, they are. And and Scripture is the inerrant word of, word of God. And you, you don't break God's commandments, you break yourself against them. So as we as we gear up for the great Christmas holiday, and I'm excited, and I know your kids are probably excited, have they submitted the gift list to mom and dad yet? Uh, they're struggling. My daughter's done okay. Uh, my son's really struggling. He was he got teary-eyed about it, and he's, got, <laughs> he's like, I, I can't think of what I want. I said, well, what do you like to do? Nothing. So this... <laughs> So I, I go, well, what have you got? And he says, well, um, money. <laughs> I open money. I said, okay, so what's, the, well, what would you buy with the money? Because that's what you should ask for for Christmas. He says, I don't know. That's why I want the money. Okay, let's move on to item number two. And that's where the list ended, by the way. Sleepover. I go, I don't exactly know how to wrap that. <laughs> <laughs> he wants the privilege to have a sleepover? Or what, what is that deal? He wants to have people come to his house, your house? What's, what's that about? Whenever he wants. Okay. I think he just, I think he wants to open up our house as a B and B. I'm not nice. sure. <laughs> yeah. But it's a kid B and B. So yeah, it's, it's a, a bit of a, a struggle. Um, last year we got them iPads and it was like, uh, you know, what to do, what to do. Is this a good idea? But they have so thoroughly, uh, loved the iPads and so thoroughly and put them in their life where it's where they do their artwork. It's where they get their entertainment. It's where they look things up. Mm-hmm. It's uh, my son started making stop motion movies with his iPad. He started making animated movies with, you know, cartoons that he drew himself with his iPad. So in a way, it's like that one gift covered so many areas because you're like, well, do you need a drawing set? Nope. I've got one right here. Do you need books? Nope. They're right here. Do you need music? Right here. You're starting it, to sound it, like it, an it, ad for Apple. Well, yeah, but I'm saying don't buy the iPad for your kids because you're going to run out. of There's nothing left to buy. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. That's, but the beauty yeah, is, so, is your kids know the meaning of Christmas and they are ready to receive the birth of their Savior every Christmas, aren't they? And, uh, you know, it's I love the way that we do Christmas. And, you know, they're they're at that point. My son's, you know, putting on a Sherlock Holmes cap uh, and walking. Uh, and walking around saying, you know, I don't, I'm not sure I'm buying this whole uh, Santa Claus thing. I just don't, you know. And so he's always searching for the the proof of it. And in the meantime, uh, we still. I get the text message from my wife at 5 a.m. Go hide the elves, move the <laughs> elves. Mm-hmm. I'm getting tired. He's getting tired of these elves. I go, look, they don't really go for the whole Santa Claus thing. Why do I have to move the elves? She says, because it's fun. Yeah, you relo- relocate the elves in a different location of the house every day. Is that right? Uh, yeah, every, they they went they went to the North Pole uh, uh, at night, came back, uh, and they reported to Santa how uh, you behaved during the day. And uh, in fact, uh, my kids were so into it that one night, Christmas Eve, my because uh, it was Christmas Eve a year or two ago, my son wrote a brand new list, an edited Christmas list, and said, could you give this to the elf? It's Christmas Eve, right? He's like, I've edited, I've amended my Christmas wish list. 
So if he can just get that back to Santa before he leaves with the sleigh tonight, I should have no. <laughs> I like the way he I thinks. Oh, he was clever, and he had things on there like a new car for mom and dad. So he was asking for things for other people. Yeah, uh, which I thought was pretty cute. But, All right. Uh, speaking yeah, of speaking of uh, parenthood, uh, tell me about the phases of parenthood as you see it. The phases of parenthood. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, you start with phase number one, which is. You know, I, I, I can't leave those kids, you know, I can't leave the kids home alone. I can't leave the kids home alone. Then you graduate slowly into phase two, which is, wow, this is so great. I can, I can finally leave the kids home alone. And then you get to phase three, you say, there is absolutely no way I'm leaving those kids home alone. Oh, uh, the joys of parenting. That's tremendous. Yeah. By the way, phase two lasts approximately two and a half weeks. <laughs> <laughs> We're yeah. in the middle of it right now. And is your uh, your church all geared up for uh, multiple services? You're going to do like 15 services at your church? Yeah, they did one year a couple of years ago. They said, you know, this is maybe we should come up with a better plan. And they rented an arena and did, I think, four services in an arena that sat 15,000. Wow. And it was packed for all four. And then they said, you know what? It's just it's harder on people to have to go off campus, unfamiliar area, and it's this giant room, so uh, the pastors just said, okay, we're just going to have to do the work, and yeah. we're going to have to do the 15 services over this holiday week. And it's so wonderful. It's just so wonderful. I, you know, there's very few things that you will deal with that kind of a parking lot mess, uh, especially, you know, it's how you get older, you just say, ah, oh, there's two people in line, I'm out of here. I'm out of here. <laughs> yeah. You, know, you can't walk into a coffee shop. I'm like, not next, forget it. Line. I'm not next. Yeah. I got to wait. It's going to be three minutes. Uh, and so there are days where you go, oh, gosh, do I feel like dealing with church on Christmas Day? And that line of cars going in is going to be four blocks long. There's going to be police everywhere. There's going to be helicopters. It's going to be crazy. And you go in and you have this, I'm going to call it a religious experience. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> Oh, it's so wonderful. And you go, why did I resist this at all? What a blessing to get the Word of God on Christmas Day. And you go, how did it make all of this mess just become a nothing? Yeah, I think when you get a little older, you you just don't like crowds quite as much. That's all. No, but that feeling that really fills your heart, we say, I really feel like filled today. Mm -hmm. I really feel like something, you know, came into me and touched me. And, and, you know, that happens a lot of times, you know, it doesn't happen every Sunday for me at church, but it always happens on the Christmas service and, of course, the Easter service. I don't know if it's just all in my head, but something happens on those days. Yeah. And so you go, I'm not going to miss it. I don't want to miss this. There's some awful, awfully special music that goes on in those holidays, and that goes back to your earliest memories of Christmas with your mom and dad, and you're singing beautiful Christmas hymns, and there they are at, at the service. Yeah. And of course, you're a kid, so you're kind of like, well, I've done my Christmas shopping. Let's see. I wrapped up a shoehorn, <laughs> a rock yep. from the garden, and now I'm just getting stuff. So, you know, it's it's you don't understand what your parents yeah. have really been through. And the potholder, too. Sure. You've got that for mom. You got Oh, yeah. yeah. I made that thing out of yarn, by the way, and it won't work. <laughs> it's a thought that counts. Patrick, thanks so much for doing the show. Always great to chat with you and have a great uh, holiday. Thanks, you too. You bet. Patrick Albanese has been my guest. We'll take a short break.
Welcome back to the show. Awfully glad to get a chance to talk to Vanitha Reisner again. She's a freelance writer, and she contributes regularly to Desiring God. She uh, Her website is danceintherain.com. I promise if you go over there, you will thoroughly enjoy her and all of her writing. Vanitha, welcome back. Oh, thanks, Bill. It's great to be back. Yeah, no kidding. So, uh, interesting article for Desiring God, uh, My Joy Rose as Sorrows Fell. It's a beautiful, beautiful story. Article. Oh, thank you. Yeah. And there's always something kind of on your plate which involves suffering, isn't there? Yes. Yeah. Suffering has been uh, part of my life for um, pretty much all my life, sometimes mm-hmm. uh, sometimes not as severe suffering. But ironically, when I look back at the footprint of my life, the times when I have not been in the midst of suffering have been probably the most shallow times in my life. I've, I had a decade of probably no struggles at all. And um, I would say that was the decade where I really drifted the most from the Lord. So I see a lot of blessing in suffering. Well, you're, you're bold and brave to say that. I, and I know it's true, um, but I would love to hear an update just on your, your story, your personal life and what you're going through right now. Oh, okay. Well, um, you can get an update from last week. Um, okay. <laughs> you went to the, uh, yeah, you didn't know you get something that um, recent. Um, my body is weakening, so that's been pretty hard. I, I go to see a polio doctor um, every six months, and I've had quite a bit of a decline in the last six months, which I didn't, which I knew, but it's always hard when you go to the doctor and they're like, wow, that, that's probably more than I had expected. And so, just struggling more in terms of um, walking, probably. I mean, I still can walk, but that getting up from chairs, doing those kinds of things is getting harder and harder. And so, um, you know, I was disappointed when I heard that because you always hope that things are going to be a little better than you anticipate. But at the same time, spent some time praying about it and realized, you know, I'm just thankful for my theology because I know this is not a surprise to God. I know he's going to use it, and I know ultimately, uh, it sounds crazy, I'll be happier for it. And so I, I'm just trusting God's going to do something um, in me through this. And and I do appreciate suffering in that when I write about it, it's not this distant thing for me. Mm-hmm. It's not something that I think about like 30 years ago, I went through something and I'm sort of remembering the struggle of that. I I think it's a gift in some ways because when I write about suffering or talk about it, it's something that I deal with, so I understand it. So that's a, that's a blessing. Yeah, it is. And I would love for you just to kind of give our listeners a little bit of a re- recap of your journey, just because it it is, I don't know if you can do this in a couple of minutes, just to give them a, a little journey of what you've been through and where you are today. Because when we talk about suffering, there's so many people that are suffering and your suffering journey has been pretty radical, Anita. Yeah, well, um, let's see if I can get it in a nutshell. But um, I was born in India and got polio when I was three months old. Polio had been almost eradicated then. The vaccine had been around over a decade. But um, in India, you don't get the polio vaccine until you're six months old. So I got polio. Doctors didn't know what it was, so it spread quickly 
And I was a quadriplegic, basically spent years in and out of the hospital, was very angry at God, but came to Christ through that in a lot of ways, seeing God had a purpose in my life, thought I was going to have this amazing, wonderful, pain-free life because I had paid my dues. And I did probably for a decade had that life that I envisioned would go on forever. Um, but drifted from God, honestly, in the midst of that, and then um, got married. And my second, I was pregnant with a second child, found out he had a heart problem, ended up that he did fine. He had surgery, but he died at two months old because a doctor made a mistake with his medicine. So that, that was pretty um, gut-wrenching. It really turned my theology around because I felt like, okay, I was promised some an abundant life and I defined abundant as the things that I wanted, kind of a pain-free life. And that was not what God had in store for me. So it was really a turning point for me, even though I'd come to Christ, you know, 15 years earlier, this was um, a huge shift in my thinking about what is a good life and what does it mean to really know God. So thought, okay, now I've, I've got that behind me. Now I'm, I'm looking more to an easy life. And um, then was diagnosed with post-polio syndrome, which is when you get polio and they didn't know this at the time, you have a certain amount of energy and everything you do, the more you do, the weaker you get. And they didn't realize this until quite, I mean, probably in the nineties, they, they started realizing this and I didn't even know it at the time. And so my body is going backwards and you can go back as far as you were when you first got polio. And I was a quadriplegic, but I'd had 21 operations. I'm able to walk. So my life had moved forward, but now it's starting to move backward physically. And that is characterized also by a lot of pain because as your muscles weaken, there's a lot of pain with that. And then um, after that diagnosis, um, six years after that, my husband uh, came home and told me he was leaving for someone else. So I was raising two adolescent daughters as a single parent. They both rebelled, walked away from God, and our my life just kind of fell into chaos. And I would say a lot of despair at the time, just not sure how I would manage with post-polio, uh, my body declining, raising two daughters. Um, and yet God... God walked me through that in probably the most incredible ways. I, I can't even describe how how present God was during that time. And um, we eventually divorced. Uh, he remarried. And then um, three, uh, three or four years after that, I remarried. So that's that's my story yeah. in a nutshell. Yeah. Well, it's, it's a powerful one, Vanitha. And I'm wondering, um, when we become followers of Jesus, I think there's a part of us that, in a way, hope that God serves us, but that's really not the relationship. We're here to serve Him. Right. Right. I think we, I think it's very common when we come to Christ, we're just so excited about what God has done for us. But there is this sense, I think we all have this unwritten thing in our heads that if we serve God and do the right things and pray and, and, obey him, that somehow he owes us something, not in a, you know, uh, transactional way, but just that's the blessing. And I think that's a lot of what the prosperity gospel kind of teaches is if you do the right thing, this is the life that God has promised you, a life without suffering. And I think that misses the real essence of what life with God is because it's God's presence. And I have found that is 
much stronger, much more apparent, even though God is with us, obviously, all the time, and it's not that he ever leaves us, but there are these times when we sense that God is with us um, in really this breathtaking way that really changes our lives and helps us, for me, understand what heaven is going to be like. I think the closest I've felt to heaven on earth is in the midst of the worst suffering because I get how satisfying God is. Wow. Um, let's talk a little bit about Christmas because according to my calculations, it's happening next week. Um, and it's not necessarily a very happy and merry time for everyone, is it? No, I, I think Christmas can be one of the hardest times. I think there's the what the longing for what you've never had. I think about people with um, who've never been married or struggling with infertility or really lonely. There's this longing for something that you don't have, and then there's the the longing for the things that you've lost, whether it's children or marriage or um, just so many things that um, family that we've lost. And I think there's certain things that we suffer and um, everybody knows about it and they are very sympathetic to us, but there's a lot of things that people go through that nobody knows. And I think at the holidays, those get um, really heightened and it feels even lonelier. When when you uh, think about some of the own, the, w- the way the direction is going for you and your health right now, is it kind of... If we're looking at a bell curve, are you kind of on the other side of the bell curve with some of your um, current health situations? Um, I'm not sure, to okay. be honest. I mean, I could, I could end up being quadriplegic, okay. which I'm not that at all right now. Oh, I, good, I can walk, good. I can drive. Oh, good, good, um, good. My arms are really weak. I use voice-activated software, but I... Um, I'm not there at all, so I don't know where I'm going to okay. go. I don't, I don't know where this yeah, is going to be. Yeah, I'm trying to get to a point here. Hopefully, I'll get there. <laughs> doesn't always work with me. But the acknowledging certain losses and coming to grips with certain realities at Christmas time, I always say that the holidays is you get a big magnifying glass put on your life. Everything kind of looks bigger than mm-hmm. normal. Do you find that to be true, or is that just a me thing? No, no, I, 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 I agree. I think that we look at things that normally we kind of let go um, and wouldn't focus on, I think, as much as at the holidays. I, I think we look around a lot more. There's a lot more expectations on the holidays and everybody's having a good time. And we're kind of reevaluating where we are in relation to where we think we should be. And I think that makes things a lot harder. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and how would you encourage people to adjust their expectations around the holidays? And you think of social events that happen or don't happen, um, all the emotions that can be um, all over the map, um, and then the stress of gift giving, whether you've got finances to buy gifts or not, um, it can be a pretty devastating time. Yeah, I think um, recently, just thinking of the words, you know, consider Jesus and God is with us and really remembering that's what that's what this is about. And I think I get, you know, I was stressed right before even our call thinking, oh, my gosh, I have so many things to do and so many gifts to get and so many things I haven't done. And the Lord just reminded me, you know, what is this all about? It's about me being with you. And 
And so the gift of Christmas really for those of us who suffer is even more intense that, wow, God is with us through this, which I don't think for people who are suffering is as strong of a promise because there's other things that fill them. But at the same time, I think we, I recognize what I can't do. I can't, you know, run around and do the things I used to do. And I constantly feel bad, like I should be doing more. I should be able to get more done or serve other people. And I feel like God keeps reminding me that's, that's not what he's asking me to do. He's asking me to be faithful and sometimes humble myself and say, Hey, I can't do that, which for me is hard. I want to say yes to everything and just acknowledging, yeah, this year I can't do those things. And I feel like people really understand when we're honest, but I think when we try to do things that we really can't, then we stress ourselves as well as other people. Mm-hmm. Benita, do you have a hard time saying no? Or have you had I a hard time saying no? I have had a hard time saying no, but the harder the harder things are in my life, the more I've had to do it. And I think it's a good discipline because I realize it's not the end of the world and it's not changing other people's lives. And I think I take on too many things, especially at the holidays, feeling like, I can't say no. And I feel like Jesus's burden is light. And yet I put a super heavy burden on myself. So there's a disconnect that I need to to go to the Lord with and understand what Mm -hmm. I'm doing that he's not calling me to. Mm, Yeah. Let me take a little break. Vanitha Reisner is my guest. You can go to Vanitha, V-A-N-E-E-T-H-A.com. That's her website, Dance in the Rain. We'll take a little break and we'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. Benita Reisner is my guest. She is so inspirational every time I speak to her and read her work. I'm incredibly moved by her passion and the way that she looks at life through suffering, which she has had a lot of in life. And as we're just thinking about the holidays and Christmas and when you have uh, things that you have to grieve and, and you've got things that are causing pain. And I, I think we get a lot of that. I, I've heard from a couple of listeners already today, Vanitha, that are feeling that, that pressure, that hurt, that mm, things aren't the way I, w- I would like them to be. And I don't like it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's really hard. It was interesting. Recently I offered to pray for my subscribers to my blog and I was amazed at how many people had prayer requests for me. And Um, just the pain that people have. There's the spoken pain that people know about and just the depth of pain that people don't even share at the holidays with, you know, marriages that are struggling and wayward children and just so many things that make us realize this life is not the way it should be. You know, there's a lot of brokenness that that God uses to draw us to himself, but Mm -hmm. yet it's a broken world. And then when God doesn't seem to answer our prayers in the way that we have been hoping or God doesn't heal, is he providing something even better? Yeah, that's that's really kind of the passion of my life is saying when he doesn't heal, he is giving us something better. He's giving us himself. And, you know, kind of with Christmas and the whole God with us, Emmanuel, we really see that 
the whole world sees that in a different way too, that that is, that's the gift we have is that Jesus came to earth for us. And the gift is in suffering, we get to behold him, I would say, much more clearly than we do any other time. And and I know I speak about that, but I would say most people I know who have really turned to God and suffering um, would say the same thing, that there is something incredible about the fellowship with Jesus when there's nothing else that fills us but him. Mm-hmm. And do you have periods where you feel discouraged or you feel uh, like you don't have it in you to be with the Lord on certain days or does your heart just beat for him every day? My heart beats every second. No, oh, I'm just joking. Yes, of course. <laughs> yeah, there are definitely times um, times when I just feel like uh, really discouraged mm-hmm. and you know, I can get excited and passionate about Christ, but it's not that every single day I wake up and open the Bible and, you know, he pours himself through the words. I I feel like at times I read it and I think, is this even real? Like, is, is this even worth it? And I've, I've certainly gone days feeling that way, but usually what I do when that happens is I just keep talking to God. That to me has been the the thing that has changed me more than anything is refusing to turn away and say, okay, well, I'm mad at God, so I don't want to talk to him right now. I'm willing to say that I'm mad at him, and I'm willing to read pretty hard words like in Lamentations or Psalms and say, this is how I feel, and I feel that you're not with me, and I feel alone, and I wonder where you are, but just continually going back to him and that ultimately is what brings me closer to him. Whereas when I feel discouraged and depressed and I pull away, either out of frustration or shame or anger, then I feel like the the cavern gets deeper mm-hmm. and even farther and farther away. And then I don't want to read the Bible because I feel so distant. So... Benita, when you have had life experiences or circumstances and you feel like you've had things collapse around you and it's driven you into a place of almost feels like wilderness. I've had a couple of listeners already today reach out and I think because of circumstances, they feel like they're almost in a wilderness and I can sense that there's room for lots of discouragement and when you're in that wilderness time, how do you survive? Uh, I would say just crying out to God. Okay. I mean, often my prayer is just help me. The other thing I do besides crying out to God is to reach out to people and, you know, friends being willing to be vulnerable and say, pray for me, or can you have a cup of coffee? I'm really struggling and I need somebody to encourage me. And sometimes that feels very vulnerable because we all want to act like we're strong and everything is going well. But it's amazing how our friends will really meet us if we're willing to say, I need somebody to encourage us. Mm-hmm. You know, I even look at Christ in um, the Garden of Gethsemane, and he wanted his disciples to stay awake. We, we need people. When we are at our lowest, you know, God does meet us, but friends meet us too. And, and really being willing to, to reach out for that has been a huge blessing for me. 
So how do we reach out to friends and then not come across like we're complaining or grumbling? Well, they may think we're complaining and grumbling, and, and sometimes that's okay. But I think we reach out saying, I'm just struggling with this. Can you help me see God in this? That's what I think what is helpful for me when people say that to me, because I, I don't feel like I have permission to really encourage people. Um, sometimes unless they come to me, because it sounds like criticism. If somebody says, you know, oh, you should feel better. Like you don't really want to do that for somebody if they're struggling. I think you want to just be there and listen. But if someone says, hey, can you remind me of truth? Because I'm really in a pit right now. That is one of my favorite things because I feel like I can bring scripture. I can bring life experience. I can pray with them without worrying about whether they're going to be offended. And I think that sometimes it does sound like complaining to other people, but even just voicing that saying, I'm really struggling. I can't afford to buy Christmas presents this year. And it's really hard. And I see a lot of people doing that. You know, can you help encourage me? I think doesn't sound like complaining if you add the, can you help encourage me? Mm -hmm. So what is it like over your uh, years when you've struggled, when you have suffered and you've had to wait on the Lord? Um, what have you learned from that, those periods of feeling like I'm waiting, waiting, waiting? I would say that waiting, waiting, waiting. Um, I, don't, I don't know why is, I said it three times. No, but that, that's how <laughs> it feels. Um, I think one, it's the hardest place I know is waiting. So for those of you who are waiting, there's nothing harder than waiting. I think it's agonizing. You wonder where God is. You don't, um, sometimes you feel hopeless in waiting, but at the same time, I think it is the most, uh, faith building thing we can do because it, it requires that we trust God. And I think at the end of our wait, whatever the answer is, there's something that ties us to the heart of God when we've had to trust and hope and wait and believe without evidence. I think those are the things that really build up our faith. So knowing if you're in the midst of waiting that at the end of this, your faith is going to be a lot stronger, I think really encourages, I, I would say that to encourage people who are waiting in the wilderness because it's a lonely place. I So the encouragement is you're not going to be there forever and God is going to do something breathtaking in you and through you, but you may not see it now. So you just have to hang on and trust that one day you'll see it. Mm -hmm. Those are such good words, Vinita. What about uh, people have that this discouragement and they and they start to drift away? And I know that you've got a way to um, encourage people because you've probably been in situations where the temptation was to drift, but you didn't, um, and you just kept your eyes on Jesus. So maybe you could just kind of encourage listeners with a little bit of the strength that you you have had and you have had in your life over these uh, last years of struggling with suffering? Yeah, I would say if you're tempted to drift away, just hang on to Jesus. Tell him how you feel. Just don't walk away in anger. Don't turn your back. Just say whatever's on your mind. And I think I've talked to so many people who say, I can't say that to God. You know, and they think it's more spiritual in some ways to do, say what, you know, our moms tell us, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. <laughs> and, 
That's not that's not how it really works with the Lord. And and I think that's true even in relationships with um, a spouse or, or family. If we feel offended or feel angry, if we just walk away, that relationship breaks. But if we're willing to stay in and say how we feel and just talk it through, that relationship gets stronger. And I think that's true of our relationship with God. If we're willing to tell God how we feel, open up the Bible and say, show me what, what I need to see. Help me understand this. You know, just keep going back to him when you don't understand it. And I have actually pulled out Lamentations 3, some of the hardest words in the Bible that anybody has said to God and said those to him and said, you know, help me. Because I love Lamentations 3 because it moves from really being very frustrated with God to to the words, you know, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. And so as we cry out to God, we will inevitably turn back to praise God. That's mm-hmm. just the that's the way um, God designed us. And I think that as we are honest in our waiting, in our discouragement, in our um, in our struggle, we will find Jesus. Yeah. Vanitha, you always encourage me. Thank you so much for doing the show. Oh, I left being here, Bill. Yeah. Thank you. And Merry Christmas. And, and thank you. I will keep you in my prayers. Thank you. I appreciate that. Merry Christmas to you, too. Thank you. Vanitha Reisner has been my guest. Go to Vanitha.com, V-A-N-E-E-T-H-A.com. We'll take a short break and be back in just a few minutes. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.